last king of Israel is Hoshea, the northern kingdom. Chapter 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of King Ahaz's reign over Judah, Hoshea, son of Allah, became king over Israel. He reigned in Samaria for nine years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, but not to the same degree as the Israelite kings who preceded him. King Shalamanzer of Assyria threatened him, and Hoshea became his subject and paid him tribute. The king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was planning a revolt, and Hoshea had sent messengers to King So of Egypt, and had not sent his annual tribute to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria arrested him, imprisoned him, and the king of Assyria marched through the whole land. He attacked Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea's reign, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, deported the people of Israel to Assyria, and he settled them in Halah along the harbor of the river of Gazan and the cities of the Medes. So basically, Hoshea decides, I'm not going to pay a tribute to Assyria anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. The Assyrian Empire, the king, does not like that, so he comes in and sacks them. That is the end. He is basically taken to exile. Everybody else is taken to exile, and that brings an end to the ten northern tribes. Now, chapter 17, verse 7, is going to explain why God allowed this to happen to them. But before we go into that, I want to talk about what is it that's actually happening here with the Assyrians and taking them in exile and captivity. So... To understand this, we need to go right now, it's 722 B.C. In 722 B.C., the Tiglath-Pilzar III, the Assyrian king of the Assyrian Empire, came in and, well, basically before that, 734, Tiglath-Pilzar III became king and he built the Assyrian Empire into a juggernaut. It was his successor, Shalemanzar IV, who began to lay siege to Israel and then his successor, Sargon II, who sacked Israel in 722 and took them into exile. So that's where we are now. But to understand this, we've got to go all the way back to Sargon I and around 2200 BC. So Sargon I was an Akkadian. The Akkadians basically lived up there around Nineveh in the northern part of the Tigris River. This is about 1,000 years before Abraham comes on the scene. So this is before the book of the patriarchs really begins to get developed. Sargon I was an Akkadian king. And what he did was, at this point in this time period of the world, most people were only city-states. Now, a city-state is basically where it's kind of like the feudal system of the medieval European time period, the medieval period. And basically had these lords... They controlled little plots of land. And they were farmers. And they became more successful than everybody else. Either their crops did better, they were better financially, they were better leaders, or a combination of a whole bunch of things. And they just tend to be more successful. So these men became more successful. They became wealthier. They bought more land. They were able to hire more servants to help them in the land. And eventually what happens is they begin to accrue a great um, force, wealth, and servanthood. Now, other farmers around them who are struggling and are pretty close um, family-wise, fairly close to each other, relatives, begin to look to these more powerful, wealthier king or lords or landowners to help them survive. So if their crops aren't doing well, that kind of stuff. 
Eventually what happens is they begin to work out a deal saying, hey, if you pay me taxes every single year, then I will protect you. Okay, I'll provide you extra food when there's a famine and you're in need. And when people attack you, I'll provide extra servants and extra men to help you fight and protect your farm. So then they grew even more powerful as a result of that. Then as they grew more powerful, they began to say, hey, if you, if you give me even more money, I'll build a city wall around my territory. And I'll build this wall around my farms and my lands. And if a major army comes in and attacks you, then you can escape behind my walls and be safe under siege. You might lose your crops and your fields and your house and that kind of stuff, but that's better than you losing your entire family. So they did. So these people started becoming what we know as lords or little mini kings. And so this is where the idea of a city state gets developed. So a state just literally means government. That's all the word state means. And so these are city governments. And it's one guy who's become very powerful, very wealthy, and he's providing protection and security if you pay him taxes, which makes him more powerful, which creates a city wall that people then can go to, which starts building it up. So that's how these city states, in a nutshell, begin to develop over time. Now what happens is he then controls his city, his land, which is now a city with a wall around it, and all in the neighboring fields around him and all the people are paying taxes. And most of the time he leaves them alone, they leave him alone, except in times of need and collecting the taxes. But power corrupts and people always want more. And so he wants more. So he decides, a king, all these kings decide, maybe I can even conquer the neighboring lord and the neighboring city-state. And we're pretty much the same ethnicity. We have the same gods. We have the same language. This would not be too difficult. So they would go attack. But you have to remember, at this time period, they basically had militias. And militias were basically just farmers who were good at protecting their fields. So some farmers might be better trained than other farmers because they've had to fight off more animals or more raiders, and they've gotten more skilled, and they haven't died. And they've got farm tools that they use really well. Some of them might even have the money to make a weapon. But overall, when you want to go attack somebody or you want to defend your farm, you basically ring the bell or blow a horn or something like that, and people gather to wherever needs to be gathered to protect that farm. And they protect your farm because they know that the raiders are going to go to their farm next. And then if you actually want to go out and attack somebody, then you have to convince everybody who's farmers to leave their fields and to leave their families unprotected, to not be working with their family anymore to grow food that they need to survive, and that they convince them to be greedy enough to go attack another city state. And most people don't want to do that. And there's no such thing as a standing army yet. Here's the question. How do you get a bunch of people to become professionally trained, which takes a lot of time away from your farm and your family, when they desperately need to be on the farm every single day to grow crops in order to survive and keep their family alive. They can't leave. They can't do both. And there's not enough people. So a lot of times these people would absorb fellow city states within one or two around them based on economic collapse of their neighbor and they're able to come in and rescue them and they owe them or they're able to just have enough men that they can go attack them. But overall, people didn't really grow beyond more than one or two states. And the most powerful ones at this time are Ur and Uruk, which are down here in Babylonian territory, and Asher and Nineveh up in the north of the, in the Mesopotamia. That brings us Sargon I. 
Sargon I was an Akkadian, and he figured out how to do it. He figured out how to develop a standing army. And basically what he did is he promised these men, if you give up your agricultural life completely and dedicate yourself to training and fighting with other men that I will gather around us, I guarantee you that though you will not get paid or eat very well during that time period because you're training, we're the only people in the entire world who will be training. (laughs) And we will be far superior to everybody else and no one will be able to stop us because there'll be farmers with farm tools running to the land. We will have swords and spears and we will be organized and trained. And what he did is he promised them that if you fight for me, I will give you plunder. You will be able to rape all the women that you want when you attack them, and you will be able to take all the grain and all the money and all the silver, all the fields and farms and villages that you burn down the ground. And that will sustain you. And so that's what he promised them. So this, so the first, this became the first kingdom, the first empire. Basically, he went out and he attacked a city-state, clobbered them because he had a professionally standing army. Nobody else did it. They plundered and burned and killed and enslaved people like crazy. And he began to expand into the Akkadian Empire, which would cover most of North Tigris River and the Mesopotamia. This is the first empire. This is why God doesn't like nations very well. The first nation was literally built on a horrible nasty, evil policy. And this is what he did. They went around. But what begins to happen is, what they would do is they would go in and people would start throwing up the white flags. Like, oh my gosh, we can't stop you. So you start taxing them. And you start taxing them so extremely that they would use everything. they So he had enough money. He had enough soldiers to attack them, as in, I can kill you if you don't do what I want. But I don't have enough soldiers to control you. See, that's the thing. Well, if Ohio decides to attack Indiana, we might have enough men to wipe out and kill Indiana. But we don't have enough men to take over Indiana and rule over Indiana and Ohio and govern it and keep the peace and all that kind of stuff. And stop rebellions, because I don't think Indiana would like that very well. What you do is you first attack one nation, and as you're attacking one sea state, you go to the next sea state, you start taxing them. And you bleed them dry. And what they know is you're powerful enough to kill them. So they're so scared of you, they pay the exorbitant tax. But the exorbitant tax cripples them economically so that when you come to them, they have no way of defending themselves. Their resources are gone, their men are worn out and tired, and it's easy to conquer them. And then you can put people, governors and people in control, and you can control things. And so this is what you do. But what happens is, eventually your men are dying in battles, their people are dying in battles. If you overtake people violently, they don't tend to want to join you as quickly. It's easier to recruit people when you believe in a cause, not when you massacred my family. Now, some people will join anybody and sell out their own mother if it means money and power and plundering. But the more and more you do that, the less likely there are those people because probably your best fighting men that you could have recruited died protecting their villages that you were coming. You've lost some of your fighting men. Few people are really willing to join you, and that means you start spreading yourself so thin over multiple city-states that you economically can't sustain that, and you can't control it with your soldiers. And what begins to happen is you economically collapse, and then raiders who hate you because of what you've done everywhere come in and take advantage of it and destroy you, and you go back to your original city-states. 
That's basically the nutshell of the first empire ever. It was brutal, it was nasty, it was evil, it was anti-God, and it was not friendly to anybody around them. But for greedy, power-hungry people, it let you know that you could do it. And many, many kings after that had posters of Sargon I on the side of their wall, like when they're growing up as kids and saying, I want to be like him. I want to do him. Now, that would be the people in noble families. And so they admire him, and they wanted an empire. So many people tried to do this as well. So what, all this happened. So the Babylonians rose up, same way. They spread themselves too thin, economically collapsed. Raiders came in, attacked them. Then Ur rose up, and same thing. And it just happens. All these nations just keep popping up and collapsing, popping up and collapsing. Because what they begin to realize is we don't have this structure to maintain large territories of land and control it in this time period. Okay, remember, this is still all just, there's no chariots, there's no nothing like that yet. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years go by, from 2200 B.C. all the way up to 745 B.C. That brings a man by the name of Tiglath Pilzar III on the scene. He is an Asher, and he has come into power in 745 B.C. His name is Pool. But when he takes the throne, he takes the name Tiglath-Pilzar III. And he is just evil to the core. And he figures out a way to build an empire. Now you remember that, that all the kingdoms up to this point have been smaller than Ohio. They have not really exceeded most states in America in size. He figures out a way to do this. Now, one thing he realizes is that he needs to control iron. Most people, weapons, shields, and armor are bronze. And bronze is a very thin metal. It's easily penetrated, broken, and it doesn't keep its blade very well. There is no iron in Mesopotamia. So he has to move further north, and he basically takes, the, one of the first thing he does, he takes control of all the iron, all the places that have iron. And he takes control of it, and he begins to mass produce it, like the, the manufacture of weapons. It's lighter, it's more durable, and he keeps his blade better. So his helmets are made out of iron, the shields are made out of iron, breastplate leaves are sewn into leather shirts and mail as iron, weapons are made out of iron, and he's going to have chariots made out of iron as well. And so he begins to develop this. He has the monopoly on it. Not only that, he employs some of the best engineers ever. And these engineers begin to build siege ramps. Okay, you can kind of see here. You have a city-state with its wall right here, with its pillars. And a lot of these city-states were built on top of hills. Now, granted, these are not the best point-of-perspective artists and scale artists. Um, so they had these hills. What he began to do is develop these siege ramps. You can see it right here. So this is a wooden siege machine, and basically he covered it in leather and soaked it in water and that kind of stuff, so it would be less likely to catch on fire when flaming arrows hit it. Men got inside of it, and they would push it, and he developed this like rocking back and forth um, uh, battling ram kind of thing in it so that nobody was exposed. Normally, if you did go up against the city wall, a bunch of people grabbed a bunch of logs, and they just started slamming into it, why boiling feces and oil and arrows are all being dumped on you. 
and, and it would, you would lose hundreds of people before you could batter in. And as the people in front of you are burning down and melting, you're running up and grabbing it behind them. Yay, war. This leather and this war machine allows the people to be protected. And he would push these up, and he built ramps. And these ramps would take months sometimes to build. He would just have all his men get a shovel and start throwing dirt up against the wall to build ramps. And then they would come up and batter through these walls, so that gave him his advantage. His archers were way better trained. So basically, he's investing more in better weaponry, which not really that's the key, but really what's the key is his engineering of siege ramps. He dug tunnels. He'd actually command his men to just dig tunnels, like underneath walls and that kind of stuff, like from miles away or from a mile away so that the archers couldn't hit them or stop them. And so this is what made him superior in a lot of ways. He also... Um, implemented um, terror tactics. Now, this is where he really, most people, when they come in, everybody in the ancient world did brutal things. Everybody in the ancient world did brutal things. But overall, there were certain lines they weren't willing to cross. But what he began to do is he actually began to, like, torture people to death outside the cities to implement fear. And then he would carry these tortured bodies around him, with him, to the next city to implement fear. And so some of the things they would do is as he sent his chariots, he sent lions out ahead of himself so the lions would rip apart the enemy before the chariots and the archers even got there. And then he would actually like tie people that he captured to trees and that kind of stuff and then tie their hands to the tree, their feet to chariots, and start ripping them apart. And then like the cans at the back of a chariot on a wedding day that get dragged behind, he would do that with human bodies behind the chariot. So he would do that. Then he would cut off the heads and he would put rings through the jaws and the mouth and carry these around. And then he would actually skin people alive and clothe his shield and chariots with the skin of these victims. This is what he did as he went in and he conquered people, destroying them. This is the fear tactics that he did when he went in. The way that he did this was what really made him successful was what was called deportation. See, most people just went and conquered and tried to control things. What he did was he actually went in and conquered these cities. And then when he conquered them, he didn't leave the people there and try to control them. He scattered them. He would grab a whole bunch of people from Babylon and scatter them throughout his entire empire. And then he grabbed people from Egypt and scattered them throughout the empire. Grab people of the Hittites and scatter them throughout. And so what he would actually do is he would put hooks in their mouths or he would tie them up or put nose rings in their noses and tie them up from that and actually cart them off and mark them, march them hundreds and hundreds of miles away to other villages. Now you have to realize most people have never traveled more than 10 miles in their entire life. Now he's going to be marching them 300 miles across his empire. And what he's going to do is he marches them 300 miles. There's no maps there's no Google Maps, there's no GPS, there's no phones, there's no nothing like that. After you've walked about 50 miles, you probably don't recognize any natural terrain. You have no idea where you're going. You've gone through the shock of your family being massacred. You've gone through the shock of having a hook run through your mouth and tied up, and you're walking, and you're being forced to walk many, many, many miles, which is exhausting, which means in the delirium, you're probably not having a lot of time to leave breadcrumb trails to find your way back home. And even if you ever did find your way back home, your family's not there anymore. 
your family is either dead or scattered somewhere else. And what he would begin to do as he scattered you across the place, he would drop a few of you from your village off in one village, and then hundreds of miles later, a few more of your village, people in your village somewhere else, and then hundreds of miles away, a few more people in your village, and he's doing this to every village. It's like grabbing an ant farm and just shaking as hard as you can, or a snow globe and all the snow are people and just shaking it. He literally just scattered the entire world across his empire. Now what you have in Babylon and Ur and Damascus and Jerusalem is you don't have these people who are ethnically the same people, the same gods, the same religion, the same language. You have people who are speaking Akkadian. People are speaking Babylonian or um, Ugaritic. You have people who are speaking the Hittite language, the Egyptian language, and they don't even have their family. Your brother is in some village hundreds of miles away. Your mom's been killed. Your dad is in another village hundreds of miles away. Your cousin's in another village. And everybody that you've spent your entire life growing up with, learning how to work together and be family together and enjoy life together, are all scattered across the world and mixed up with a bunch of other people too. Which means if you do survive the coming winter, you're going to have to learn how to communicate with a bunch of people who are speaking different languages. There's probably a few people who speak your language, but there's lots of other people who don't. And those people, it's not just learning one language, it's multiple languages. And then you're also going through the trauma of everything that's happened to you. So not just learning another language, but like the, the therapy that you're going to need, which does not exist back then, to process this trauma that's going to affect your ability to function. Some people are just going to go insane and die because of what they've witnessed and what's happened to them. Some are not even going to make it through winter because there's no fields or no crops. They've been burned down. And then others, are. You're, if you can't even communicate, you're going to spend years doing this. Eventually, by the time you communicate, his empire is established. And this was allows him to control people without them rebelling against him. You don't actually have to control them because they're too busy trying to survive and learn the language. And you don't have to try to keep the rebellions down because they can't even rebel because they're not even in their village with their people speaking the same language. It's basically the Tower of Babylon all over again, except in a violent massacre kind of way as well. And this is basically the same way that God broke down their unity with the Tower of Babylon, confusing their languages and scattering them. This is exactly what he did in a violent, horrific way. And so these people are scattered throughout the world. And then by the time they actually can get together and develop a nation and a family and a village, once again, his empire is already firmly established. And there's no way you're taking this machine down now. And then what happens is you're going to realize this is my lot in life. And so there's no more you've got to marry somebody of the same ethnicity again now anymore because there are very few people to pick from. So people start intermarrying with each other for the first time really ever which also means an intermingling of gods and beliefs. And this is going to be the first melting pot, so to speak, ever in the hall of human history, where language, cultures, and religions are all coming together. This is how he controls them. This is why when God, later, the, the Babylonians are going to come along, they're not going to quite do it to the same scale because they don't have to. The Assyrians have already done it. They're eventually going to be replaced by the Persians. And the Persians are going to believe that, hey, if you give people a good life, they'll worship you and serve you through loyalty. So Tiglath-Pilzar III and the Assyrians gained people's obedience through fear. 
The Persians believed that you gain people's obedience and loyalty through generosity. And so they're going to actually allow everybody to return back to their original lands under the name of Cyrus II. They're going to allow for freedom of religion, and they're going to abolish slavery, and they're going to allow everybody to return to their original lands. Now, remember, the, the Persians came along in 539. The Assyrians scattered you in 722 or somewhere around there. So it's 200 years later, and they're saying, you can go back to your original lands. Most people at that point are like, nothing's there anymore. Right? My, my family, I've got a new family now. We're like several generations into a brand new family with these kids here. So most people are not going to return. This is how he controlled the empire. So he moves from controlling something no more than the size of half the size of Ohio or something like that. But he ends up controlling all of the Mesopotamian region all the way down to Syria along the western coast of, um, sorry, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean and down to Egypt. This is the first empire ever built in all of human history. And it was built on bloodshed. It was built on massacre and violence. The one place he's not going to be able to touch is Judah. Now, many historical scholars are like, that's kind of weird. How in the world did he not take Judah? And they've got all these theories around it. But the Bible gives an answer. God stopped them. And that's basically it. And he moved all the way around Judah and down to Egypt and then back up home again. So you can see that this empire lasts from 745 to 612 BC. Then you saw the name Shalamanzer in chapter 17, verse 3. When Tiglath dies, Shalamanzer in the Bible is also Shalamanzer the fourth in historical records. Shalamanzer, remember, they didn't have like the first and the second and the third and the fourth at the end of their names in the ancient world. That's something scholars have added to their names to help us keep them all organized in our heads and on charts. So Shalamanzer the fourth is going to take over. He is going to actually be the one who puts siege to Israel. See, other nations have been falling way before Israel. And we already read last week about Aram falling already to Tiglath, Pilzar III. When he dies, Shalamanzer the fourth is going to take over. He's going to put Israel under siege. So basically, we're, putting you, we're taxing you to weaken you and then putting you under siege, and they're doing all this stuff to them. Then it is actually, he's going to successfully finish the siege, but he's going to die right before he sacks Israel, or Samaria, the capital of Israel, and takes them into exile. It is Sargon II, named after that first guy way back in the beginning, who is going to actually sack Samaria and take Israel into captivity. Now, remember at this time, most of the righteous people in Israel have moved south to Judah. Israel has become so... Now, Judah is not great either. But Israel has become so bad and so idolatrous and so corrupt that most righteous people and most of the Levitical priests have all abandoned Israel completely over the last 50 to 100 years. And they have all moved and migrated down to Judah. So when, the, when Sargon II actually deports Israel, the northern kingdom, there are really very few righteous people even left. In fact, there are no righteous people left. 
And according to the biblical text, our estimates are somewhere around 80 to 90% of Israel actually just gets killed. They're so evil, they're so anti-God, and because they're resisting Assyria, and Assyria is so bloodthirsty and massacrous, that we know somewhere around 80 to 90% just get massacred. That's the 10 northern tribes. So by far, the absolute majority of the 10 northern tribes, which are 10 of the 13 tribes of Israel, just get massacred. And the Assyrians take very few percentage-wise of the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. So this is important to understand because when the Babylonians are going to come, one, God is already... See, Judah is a little bit different. There was a lot more righteous people in Judah. Judah was still messed up and really bad, but there were a little bit more righteous people in Judah. And so God actually warned them to not resist the Babylonians. The Babylonians actually didn't deport everybody like the Assyrians did. The Babylonians, well, one, they didn't have to deport that much because the Assyrians had already done most of the world. But the Babylonians really only deported the nobles and the intelligence people and that kind of stuff. They left all the poor people behind. And most poor people didn't resist and poor people weren't deported. So the amount of people that they killed was nowhere even close to what the Assyrians killed. So Judah largely is going to have a lot more people go into exile and a lot more people are going to be left behind in the land who are poor So more of Judah is going to survive than any other tribe. That's why when the Persians come and let them go back home, most of the people that are going to go back are Judah. Most of the other tribes don't go back home because most of the tribes didn't survive the Assyrians. And those who did go into exile have been in exile way longer than Judah, which means they're far more firmly established in their new way of life where they are. So Judah is really going to be the people returning. And even then, only a small percentage of Judah is even going to return back to the land because they all have new lives out there. So he is seriously changing the way that the world is done, the way that people are interacting with each other, the way that people are going to do life, the way that people think are going to think about life as they intermix with a bunch of people, and the amount of people that are going to die is significant. So this is like Europe recovering for the bubonic plague. More than one-third of Europe was wiped out in the bubonic plague. And that's exactly what's happening here, except it's done through an army and soldiers. So Sargon II is the one that actually sacks Israel, who takes the survivors into deportation, into exile. And then he will be succeeded by Sananacherib. Sananacherib is going to try to attack Judah, but because God is going to protect Judah, he's going to drive Sinanacherib away. And then his successor is going to bypass Judah and go to Egypt. And that's pretty much going to bring an end to the Assyrian Empire conquest. Not the end of the Assyrian Empire, but their massive conquest and deportation. So that's kind of where we are now. 